Hello, and welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your guest host, Glenn Ostland, and tonight I'm joined by one of our long-lost regular panelists and a special guest. So first we have the brilliant and sometime chicken quesadilla chef extraordinaire, Bridget. Hey, Bridget. Hey there, Glenn. Yeah. Uh, good to be back. So you're making uh, chicken quesadillas for uh, your husband's ward functions, I saw. I did that on Sunday. Yes, I did. And uh, I'm not very domestic. Like, I've got all kinds of cookbooks for stupid people in my kitchen. So uh, they actually got eaten. So I guess they were either good or I'm told Mormons will eat anything, though. So, But they got eaten fast. So I think that's a testimony to the fact that people like them. I, I, I read it, and it made me go out to the store and buy some uh, tortillas. I'm serious. It got me in the mood. <laughs> cool. That's funny. <laughs> And then the reason that we're gathered here, we have the brilliant and prolific Jana Reese. How are you doing, Jana? I'm doing great. I don't know if I live up to either brilliant or prolific, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for coming on. Uh, you know, just, just for some background, um, earlier this week, a friend of mine updated his Facebook status with a link to an article called Flunking Sainthood. Now, usually... When I'm on Facebook, if it isn't asking me to collect a secret stash of mafia weapons or adopt a adorable little treasure monkey with big eyes, I usually just ignore it. But this title, Flunking Sainthood, it intrigued me. So I followed the link over to BeliefNet and spent the next several minutes reading through uh, your article that you uh, subtitled, The Fun of Spiritual Failure. And this was the first time, Jana, I, I had come across uh, you or any of your your work that you've done, Bridget, has been uh, familiar with uh, some of the things that you've done from earlier on. And when I started looking into it, I just saw that there was a ton of stuff. There's, you've got books, you've got articles, you've got a monthly radio program called WJK Radio. Uh, so tonight, we're just going to spotlight Jana and focus mainly on the article Flunking Sainthood, but also spend some time talking about some of your other projects that you've done, some of the things that you have uh, on the burner as well. So, Jana, would you like to start off uh, by giving us just a general introduction about yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me on your program. This is a great opportunity to talk with you. And I am an editor and a writer and used to be a scholar. I may be going back to teaching next year at Miami University. Um, I've written eight books or co-written and have a couple more in the hopper. One of them is called The Twible, which is a Twitter Bible that I've been tweeting out every day for about eight, nine months now. And so we are in the book of First Kings at the moment, and the idea is to do each chapter of the Bible in 140 characters or less with humorous commentary. And then the other book that is due imminently is called Flunking Sainthood, so it's the same title as the blog, the BeliefNet blog. And that book will be out in the spring of 2011. Great. So, so what's your what's your background in in Mormonism then, Jana? I became a Mormon in 1993, so it's been 17 years. Mm -hmm. Before that, when I was when I was very small, I was nothing. My parents were agnostic on my mother's side, atheist on my father's side, and when I was nine, my mom started taking us to Quaker meeting because I think she worried that if if we were exposed to no religion at all, we'd have nothing to rebel against later. <laughs> <laughs> but Quaker meeting was wonderful, um, but then in, when I was 14, I decided to become baptized in the Presbyterian Church and was Presbyterian through my high school and college years and actually was studying to become a Presbyterian pastor when I decided to become 
a Mormon heretic while I was still a student in seminary, which is not a typical trajectory, but that was what happened with me. So I, I just have to ask. Oh, go, go ahead, Bridget. I was just going to ask, how old were you when you joined the LDS Church then? I was 23. 23, okay. And I'm, so I'm 40 now. You can do that math, yes? <laughs> oh, that wasn't my goal, but uh, I was just curious, solidly adult convert, and that's very interesting to me. So, yes, adult uh, convert. Yeah. Which I think, you know, we're going to be talking about this blog post about Mormon church meetings in particular, and, and of course that background does affect how I see sacrament meeting because I had a lot of basis for comparison before, and also my husband is a member of another faith, and so I attend services with him sometimes, so I have that basis of comparison. And also in my job, I work for a Protestant press, and so I attend quite a number of different kinds of Protestant services and also Catholic services, and I'm very interested in religion generally. So I'm looking at Mormonism perhaps not from the same lens exactly that someone who'd grown up in the church exclusively would use. Yeah, and, and some of the questions that I had as I was reading through uh, your article, I, I think comes out of my own inexperience in other religions. You know, I, I grew up in the church, and that's really all that I've known, and I've, I've lived in Japan for a few years, so I've seen uh, non-U.S. Mormon culture, but... Um, so, so before we get out of your uh, intro, uh, did, do you want to talk at all about the the reasons why you joined the church uh, at at twenty three? Sure. Um, well, I, as I said, was studying to be a pastor, but before, right before I started seminary, the summer between college and seminary, I was living in Vermont, and not far away from the Joseph Smith Memorial in Sharon, and since I had done my undergraduate senior thesis on Mormonism, I thought I would take this little day trek up there. And I was the only person there other than this sister missionary who sort of seized upon me and gave me, just grilled me. She was, hmm. she was quite intense, actually. And now that I've had more interaction with other missionaries, I realize how unusual she was. Um, she asked me all sorts of questions about whether I'd read the Book of Mormon. I said I had tried, but it hadn't grabbed me at that point. It grabbed me later, but, but by that point it hadn't. And she said, um, well, what do you think of our faith? And I told her the things that I admired and the things that I, I didn't agree with. And then she said, she dropped this bombshell and said, I don't think you have any right to judge our religion until you really read the Book of Mormon. And that hit me quite profoundly because I agreed with her in principle. And since I was a Christian and also had experienced what it was like to be a Christian when other people judged Christianity having never read our foundational sacred text, it, it bugged me that I now saw that in myself, that I was judging Mormonism without really giving the Book of Mormon its due. So I decided that I would, I would read the Book of Mormon and I agreed to meet with sister missionaries and we did that for the rest of that summer. And the Book of Mormon, I had a completely different response to it when I went back to it through the lens of faith. And there were several beautiful moments as I was reading it where I felt the Spirit very strongly and felt, wow, this really is God's Word. What if this really is true? What if, what if Christ came to America? That changes everything. And 
yet here I was, I was getting ready to be a Protestant pastor and I was getting ready to marry a Protestant guy. And I thought, how could I change my life like this? And so that was when I was 21. It took me um, over two years before I was baptized in the LDS church. It was a really long conversion process. And and so that was 17 years ago, and you, you stayed uh, active in the church the, the entire time. Mm-hmm. Have, has your views changed at all, or do you still have that strong testimony rooted in the Book of Mormon? My testimony of the Book of Mormon has only gotten stronger. I think people who, people who might maybe read some of my more critical aspects of LDS culture are often surprised to find out what a, a strong testimony I have of the gospel. There are elements of the church that I would really like to change, but the core elements of the gospel and the restoration I feel deeply committed to and feel that, that they have changed my life. Um, and it's been a tremendous privilege to be on that journey and to just put myself in God's hands as a 20-something and say, I don't know about this, but I'm going to trust that you're leading me somewhere where I am supposed to be. And I've never regretted that. So my testimony of the Book of Mormon has strengthened. You asked me if some other things had changed, and I think, yes, if we're not growing and changing on this journey, then we're really not on the journey at all. And so there are other aspects of my testimony that I think I still struggle with or am working through, but the Book of Mormon isn't actually one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. I I think that that's, that's really amazing. I <laughs> I enjoyed hearing that, Jana. And um, I just want to know so we could clarify for later. So you said that you were engaged to a Protestant guy. Was that the guy you eventually married? I guess for the reader's benefits, uh, Jana is married to a Protestant. He used to be Methodist. Now he's Episcopalian. And uh, uh, so was that the guy that you married, or did you later meet another Protestant guy and get <laughs> no, married to him? No, that's the same guy. Yeah, that's the same wonderful guy. So were you Protestant when you married him? Did you convert after marriage? or? Yes. We got married in the Presbyterian Church, actually, the church that I had gone to in high school. We had a beautiful candlelight wedding. Um, it was right after Christmas, and the church was gorgeously decorated already for Christmas, which you know had the benefit for two frugal, practical people that we didn't have to buy many flowers, but also was just stunning. I, I still have friends coming up to me and saying that our wedding was one of the most beautiful weddings that they'd ever been to because it was winter and candlelight and romantic. It's very lovely. Um, anyway, I'm all right. Well, we'll keep that in mind to maybe explore later on when we touch on this again. Okay. Yeah, that's great. So, so before we, we delve into the article, did, anything more you think we need to talk about uh, back background? Um, no, I don't think so. Well, I, to say, um, you had said, have, have I gone to church continuously for all 17 years? And I wanted to just clarify, I took one year off. I actually, this, I wrote an article about the concept of sabbatical. I found myself in 1999 feeling extremely burned out and decided that I would take from August of 2000 to August of 2001 off. And it was never a question of going inactive, which is the most bizarre Mormon phrase ever, or leaving the church or lapsing. I was still living the gospel and living the principles, but I needed a time to cocoon just at home or with myself and also going with Phil to his services sometimes. And then I could come out of that stronger, which is what happened. So I just wanted to clarify so that 
anyone who knew that I'd taken that year off didn't think I was being dishonest in any way. So. Well, th- thanks for thanks for talking about your background so openly, sure. and I, I think it it really uh, helps to inform some of these uh, reasons that you that you stated and, and your thesis in this article, um, and your your willingness to be open, um, looking at uh, current LDS culture, maybe the 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 culture of spirituality or the the culture of. Uh, uh, Sunday performance, if you want to get really mm. cynical. So um, in, in your, your article, um, Flunking Sainthood, you open it by saying that uh, you were inspired by an essay called Sundays in America. So maybe you can tell the listeners a little bit about uh, Sundays in America, what that essay was about, and how it led you to write your article, and, and really what the thesis of your article became. Sure. Sundays in America is a book by Suzanne Strempick Shea, who is a novelist in Massachusetts. And in the book, she decided to try a different church every Sunday for 52 weeks. And I read this book several years ago, and I liked many aspects of it and some other aspects I had a bit of a problem with, primarily that just the idea that you could go on a Sunday for one hour and try to get the flavor of a religion. I mean, in our religion, certainly you have so much going on during the week. Judging Mormonism just on the basis of what happens in sacrament meeting isn't quite fair. And I think, for example, when she went to a Christian science service and said, where are the children? Well, that's because the children have their own service. You know, So there were some issues that I had with the book, but boy, I completely identified with what she said about Mormon sacrament meeting because she basically concluded that with all of the fear-mongering about Mormonism in the world, you know, Mormons are taking over, you know, Mormons are growing so fast. The only thing that outsiders really had to be afraid of was that we were going to bore everyone to death. (laughs) And I thought that was a very good observation. When you look at sacrament meeting from the lens of a visitor or an outsider, someone who has no experience of what a sacrament meeting is or should look like, there's no other word to describe it but dull. And... So that was the foundation of this blog post that I wrote. The the blog is called Flunking Sainthood. This particular piece on the blog, this article, was called Why Are Mormon Sacrament Meetings So Dull? Okay, so so you're writing a book called Flunking Sainthood, and this this will be part of that book, or is the the main... It's actually not. Okay. Um, No, and the book is not about Mormonism. The book is about 2009 when I spent a month well, I spent 12 months living 12 different spiritual practices and then trying to write about them. So each month I would attempt something different, like having an Orthodox Jewish Sabbath or fasting from sunup to sundown every day, and then trying to write about that, sometimes to comic effect, sometimes not. Wow. But that's what the book is about. And the blog is, is a very far-ranging look at spirituality and particularly at how people... We, we place very high expectations on ourselves and don't always meet them. And the point of the blog is to say, there's space for you. There is mercy. There is grace. And there's also humor because we can laugh at ourselves. Cool. Great approach. All right. Well, let's, let's look. In, in this, this blog, um, you make five uh, assertions, or you say there's five reasons why you think that LDS church services are dull. And uh, the first one, uh, you say, uh, we no longer expect any spiritual manifestations. 
So maybe you could tell us a little bit what, what, you, what you mean by that, that uh, sure. Mormons don't expect spiritual manifestations. I think what I'm, the, the framework from which I'm writing is, as a historian, um, my doctorate was in American religious history. My work focused on Mormonism in the 19th century. And so when I'm writing about spiritual manifestations in Mormonism, I'm thinking about what we used to do and what we used to expect. Um, well into the 19th century, we had routine manifestations of um, spiritual presence, divine power, people being slain in the spirit, women standing up in Relief Society speaking in tongues, other women standing up in Relief Society to interpret what had just been said in tongues. And this was simply a part, part and parcel of what it meant to be Mormon. And now when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we focus instead on the warm feeling, the, the fuzzy, lovely, flannel, blanket feeling of the Holy Spirit. And that's okay. I'm not dissing that. But I'm saying that in addition to that, we have a profound historical and biblical example that the Holy Spirit is fire, that the Holy Spirit descends as tongues of fire. And we used to know what that was. We used to have incredible manifestations in the Kirtland Temple. And what I'm saying is that we also used to expect that to happen. We used to pray for that to happen. And we don't do that anymore. And that is the number one reason why our sacrament meetings are as dull as they are. We are not praying for the Spirit to show up in a dramatic, beautiful, profound, life-changing way. Well, I'm reminded of uh, this part in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the kids are talking to Mr. Beaver about Aslan, asking him questions about mm -hmm. Aslan. And one of them says, he's a lion, so is he safe? And Mr. Beaver's like, safe? Of course not, but he's good. Right. And I, I think that that's the problem with people in God today. They want a God who's safe. And uh, I don't want to go into all my views on this, but I don't think God is safe. God is dangerous. God uh, is supposed to be pushing us to our limits and challenging us. And uh, I, I worry that that's a problem for LDS meetings, that people don't come expecting to be challenged and surprised by God. They come expecting uh, safe and comfortable and uh, cozy, you know? And uh, right. I think that was kind of what you were hitting on there with your first point. Right. And... I'm not trying to say that it's never okay to be safe. Church should be a safe place, but it also needs to be, as Reinhold Niebuhr said, it's a place that, well, good preaching is what he said, um, needs to comfort the afflicted, but it also needs to afflict the comfortable. And that's mm -hmm. the point that we're missing. We're missing that. Well, that, that's um, there was really one... good. Oh, yeah. sorry. No, no, I, I, my question was right on, in line with what you, you were saying. I was just wondering... Because what you said in your uh, your article, Jenna, you described the spirit as being warm, fuzzy, and non-threatening. And this idea of, of a threat in spirituality is really interesting to me. You, you, and you guys have both already kind of touched on this. But I'm just wondering if you could delve a little bit more into this. Like, what, what does that really mean to have a healthy, threatening spirituality? And, and mm. what's really at risk? Well, that's a very good question. I think... In the New Testament, for example, whenever an angel appears, the first words out of the angel's mouth are, do not be afraid. Angels were freaking scary. <laughs> That's why an angel says, do not be afraid. 
And we don't have that, that sense of awe. We don't have, we talk about reverence, but what we really mean by reverence is just shutting up. We don't have that sense of the fear of the powerful God. Mm. Um, I was just thinking, I was actually thinking of a sermon that I heard from Buster Sories one time. He was talking about what God's going to tell you to do. And he was like, let me tell you what Jesus is going to tell you to do. Jesus is going to tell you to do something stupid. And... uh, that sounded really funny, but to some extent that's true because I think that when God tells us to do things, um, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I went to BYU as a teenager. I was actually going to the Presbyterian Church at the time, and I just, uh, long story short, I felt God telling me to go to BYU, and I was like, this is stupid. It's crazy. The college is 99% Mormon. I'm not going to have a network of other evangelicals there. I'm not going to have a community support group. Why would you want me to go there, God? It was very, very uncomfortable, pushed me out of my comfort zone. But uh, I did it. And I think that uh, Jana was talking about earlier, she was studying to become a pastor. And uh, she feels like God told her to join the LDS church, which is such a different thing from being a woman pastor in the Presbyterian church. It probably pushed her out of her comfort zone, but she felt that God told her to do it. And she did it. And uh, I think that you just uh, have to be open to God telling you to do something that's so different from what you were expecting to do with your life. And uh, I guess that that's just what I worry about with sacrament, meaning that a lot of people come and they know exactly what to expect, and they aren't really open to hearing anything else. Uh, they don't want any uproarious singing or clapping or foot stamping or, uh, you know, any of those, or those charismatic gifts, manifestations of charismatic gifts. They're very, very uncomfortable with all of that. So, uh, yeah. And I should point out that not every early Mormon was comfortable with it either. Um, and one of the reasons why it fell into disuse in Mormonism, or, or disuse is not the right word because it's not something that we use, but is that when people are having these spiritual manifestations and they're having revelations and they're speaking in tongues, things get out of control very quickly. And so you have a lot of examples in history when people claim to be receiving a direct revelation that bears upon the entire church. You know, we have a very strong belief that the prophet is the only person to receive revelation for the entire church. That belief came out of painful experiences in the 19th century when lots of people were claiming to have those experiences. And so when I say that I want us to be open to the Spirit showing up in a really dramatic way, I also want us to be cautious about how we're going to deal with each other. And we need to be humble, we need to be listening to God and to one another. You know, this is not an opportunity for people to be stars and, you know, I'm going to be the one speaking in tongues. The New Testament is very, very clear about not ranking one gift above another. And I'll tell you, you know, as as someone who's been a member all of his life, that my my kind of traditional conditioned response to why God would influence uh, or or encourage you know push Bridget out of her comfort zone say go to BYU or push Jana out of her comfort zone of being a pastor and come to LDS is because God's pushing everyone into the Mormon Church, right? I mean, is that kind of what the the general thought would be that we wouldn't be so surprised to see the Spirit um, asking other people to do uncomfortable things to move in our direction, but once we're here... <laughs> you can stop being uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, what, what, what is it? Well, and I, I'm, I'm wondering if you could also give some examples of um, 
Mormons outside of the U.S. who are still praying for the manifestations of the Spirit and um, receiving them? Because you mentioned in the article that, that there are some outside of the U.S. who still uh, kind of play in, in this more early Mormon spiritual tradition. Uh, and, and I'm not aware of any of those. Mm. Well, I can tell you that I might have overstated that, and I, I wasn't quite aware of that until I read through it later, okay. unfortunately, after it had already been published. I was thinking specifically about experiences that I had traveling in Central America. Mm. This was when I was just about to join the church. It was the summer of 1993, right before I was baptized. And I had some beautiful witnessing of experiences uh, among LDS. And because I didn't have a lot of experience going to sacrament meeting at that time, I thought church was always going to be like that. You know, we're always going to have these amazing, spontaneous singing times and all, you know, which, of course, was not how it turned out. Mm. But I do think that from what I've heard of people, for example, who've traveled in Africa, that there is a, a more openness to um, some of, of the traditions there and also musical instruments that are not necessarily common or welcomed here. And I think that we could do more to move in that direction. Okay. Interesting. I, I have a hard time seeing that. <laughs> I, I, rem I remember being a kid seeing um, a, a woman stand up for um, fast and testimony meeting, and she, she had had a dream that the Lord had told her that everyone needed to go get boats because there was going to be a flood. And I, 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 I was maybe six or seven years old, but I have this distinct memory of, you know, members of the bishopric kind of turning to each other and passing notes. And I can only imagine it was saying, let's get her off of here as quickly as possible. Um, but I just, I, I, like every once in a while, there'll be something like that, but it gets squelched so quickly. Uh, I, I just have a hard time seeing it move mm. back to that kind of Kirtland-esque uh, state. What, what do you see, uh, Bridget? Do, do, do you see this kind of spiritual manifestations in, in, uh, in, in your experience? What, you mean at my evangelical church yeah. or at the LDS church? Uh, no, no, um, evangelical. Gosh, I have a really eclectic background. Uh, I attended the Presbyterian church, probably the same one as Jenna, I'm thinking, when I was in high school. And uh, later, I uh, before that, I went to the Nazarene Church. Then I went to the Assemblies of God. And the Assemblies of mm -hmm. God are known for their speaking in tongues and their charismatic gifts. Uh, don't tell them that Mormons beat them to it. But uh, mm -hmm. the Assemblies of God, uh, they're pretty well known for uh, speaking in tongues and being a bit more upbeat. Though the one I went to was in Provo, so it was a little bit laid back in that regret, in that terms. And uh, I didn't hear a lot of people speaking in tongues there. We did hear some manifestations of tongues at the next church I went to, which was a New Frontiers church. But uh, the current church I go to, they don't have a position against charismatic gifts, but uh, we don't tend to see speaking in tongues uh, at the worship services. It's not that anybody's opposed to it. It can still happen in the background, but uh, it's generally not a part of the actual service, speaking or interpretations of tongues. I have heard that in Protestant services before, but... Uh, the current local church that I go to, I haven't seen it at yet. Yeah, I've got to say, I've never really seen it. Uh, you know, I've, I've read about it. Um, I've read studies on Glossolalia, um, but but I, I've never actually seen it. There was there was one time in, in high school where, where there was a, a girl that I was dating that 
was talking about speaking in tongues and I kind of convinced her to, to do it just because I was curious about it. And I thought that she had. And then years later, she told me that she had just faked it. <laughs> she oh, she wasn't sad. really doing in, uh, speaking in tongues. But I've never actually um, witnessed it. So, well, you know, yeah. we talk a lot about the idea of, of Joel 2, where you have these these visions and blessings are going to be returning. We sing the Spirit of God like a fire is burning. Yeah. Um, you know, we sing about this. We used to do it. Mm-hmm. And there's something precious that has been lost. Well, and I think that's a good segue to your number two, because, you know, you, you say that um, your second point, you say that the reasons that we're there in church is primarily to learn about God, not to worship God. And, you know, th- this is where I had some questions, because you know, at, for, for me as a lifelong Mormon, the idea of worship has always been tied to obedience to commandments. You know, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's the way that you worship God. And so when when I hear other people talk about worship in, you know, whether it's singing hymns or feeling emotional or these charismatic gifts, it's it's just very foreign to, to me and my experience. I, I don't understand what, like what God really gets out of worship like that. Can Can you mm. explain that? Well, that's a very good question. We have a couple of different questions. What does God get out of worship? Yeah. What do we get out of worship? Yeah. Um, I, I probably couldn't presume to say what God gets out of worship, and I find, I find it very confusing now that I'm tweeting through the Old Testament, for example, what God wants out of sacrifice, what God wants out of you know, 22,000 oxen being murdered, slaughtered, yeah. whatever. Peter would have a lot to say about this. Yeah. But in terms of worship, I think one of the things that that was a, a great help to me looking through all the comments. First of all, it was very surprising to see just how passionate people were and how many people commented on the blog. Um, but the ones that pushed me to define worship more clearly, I, I felt really, if I could use some evangelical language, Bridget, I felt convicted that I hadn't been clear enough about worship, what worship is in a Mormon context. And I'm still going to try to figure that out. I may try to blog about that some more. But worship, hmm, worship comes from this idea of coming together before God. And I think, Glenn, when you were talking about how growing up in a Mormon context, you've been taught that keeping the commandments is your form of worship. I agree with that. I think that, that, and the Bible is very clear, keeping the commandments is a form of worship, for example, for the Israelites. But it's not the only one. And what we're missing is corporate worship. We have good individual worship. We have, in many families, we have good family worship. What we don't have is good congregational worship. Because when we get together for sacrament meeting, and it's no accident that it's called a meeting and not a worship, um, we are there to learn about God. We're there to be instructed about God and not primarily to relate to God. And that, I think, is a real failing on our part. Well, um, my attitude towards worship, I think that being in a religion, having a relationship with God, is very much like a marriage. And um, I just joined the Evangelical Covenant Church a few weeks ago. And when I went to the new members meeting, one of the very first things they showed to us was this video of a sermon by Rob Bell. He's a proper 
popular oh, sure. evangelical preacher. Yeah. And he was talking about why do we go to church? Why do we tithe? Why do we do these things for God? And he said, now picture this. I want you to picture a man who comes home one day with flowers for his wife. And he hands them to her, and they're really great. She loves them. And then he says, well, of course I got them for you. I'm your husband. Mm. Or he says, well, yeah, I got them for you. They were on sale. <laughs> you know, how would, how would she feel? If I'm he was missing like, the yeah, point I, here. Is there something wrong with either of those two statements? I, I'm joking. Well, I, 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 I'm, you, I'm, the, I'm the lone man on the phone here. Protect yourself against any marital, uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, they were on but the sale. point is yeah, that it's a good deal. the wife, the wife doesn't want him to go through these kind of rituals just because he's her husband or just because he can. He, she wants him to do this because he loves her. She wants him to yeah. do this because she wants his heart. So God does not. The point of this all was that God does not want you to go to church because you feel like you have to. He does not want you to tithe because you feel like you have to. He does not want you to sing worship songs because you feel like you have to. He wants your heart. Mm -hmm. um, so everything that I do at church is part of me, uh, part of my relationship with God. You don't have a relationship with someone unless you do things with them. And uh, church is one of those things. But worship, now I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this. I'm going to freak some people out a little bit, but I'm going to say it anyways. Worship is like the sex of the marriage. And uh, you can technically have a marriage without it, but... It would That's really it. not be a Bridget, good marriage. Bridget, we're all marriage. in a sexless marriage. That's the problem. <laughs> you're, you're totally right. You're totally right. Where's the spirit? Where's the drama? I love that image. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, just being before God and adoring him and uh, expressing my emotions for him. That's worship to me. That's worshiping God. I mean, it's all to some extent worshiping God. Living a life for God is to some extent worshiping God. But worship for me is the sex of the marriage. So uh, it's just mm -hmm. time when I, I'm before God and I express my love to him and uh, express what he means to me. And for me, that happens most easily through music. I'm sure we'll get to music on point three. But uh, that's what worshiping God is. And I, uh, that was what I thought as I read Jana's comment about how uh, LDS services are not are they about learning about God rather than worshiping God? I think that, uh, yeah, like Jenna said, you're kind of in a sexless marriage here. You know, and I, I think a legitimate LDS response to the lack of worship in our sacrament meetings is that that's not where worship happens, that worship happens in the temple. And I've heard that before, and I think there is merit in that argument because the temple for us is, is not the everyday, and it is a place apart. Um, however... If we're being honest about what sacrament meetings are supposed to do, they are supposed to invite others into our community, which I think that they're currently not doing very well. And I think that they are also supposed to bind us together as a congregation. And part of that happens when we are worshiping God together with heart, mind, and strength, which is how the Bible puts it all together. Real worship has to have mm, all point. three things. It's not just the mind. And I think, you know, we've got the heart pretty well down. That's pretty good. The soul, though, is missing. The whole nefesh, the whole person, the whole self is missing. Well, I, I'm wondering, can you give some examples of, of this, this worship, this soul-filled, uh, gets-your-blood-pumping, experiencing God, um, frenzied, ecstatic worship um, that, that other religious traditions and cultures have that Mormonism is missing? I don't even have to go to other religious traditions because I've had a couple of experiences in our own tradition mm -hmm. that were 
profound and beautiful worship experiences. It, it, like um, in, in a group setting, like a, a meeting yeah. or okay, <laughs> yes, yeah. real Mormons actually real Mormons, Mormons getting together to worship. Mormons. One of them, yes, <laughs> one of them happened in the Kirtland Temple when I was there for the Mormon History Association meeting. This was probably 2004 or 2005. I'd have to look back, but we. Um, I was in the choir. We ha- we would form this sort of ad hoc choir for the weekend and then practice during the weekend to do the service on Sunday. And we were singing in the Kirtland Temple from all four corners of the temple. So we had soprano, alto, alto tenor bass in each group, in each corner in the temple, a mixed choir. And when we sang the Spirit of God like a fire is burning, the Spirit of God really was burning like a fire. And it's it's difficult to describe what real worship is, but when you experience it, boy, do you know it. And I don't think uh-huh. that there was a person, yeah, I don't think there was a person there who didn't feel changed, that God was completely present in that moment, and we were tied to the saints who had been there at the dedication. We were tied to them in this tangible, unbreakable way and that we were tied to one another in this profound act of worship. So that was the first one that I I could think of. And the other one is just very recent. I went in, I guess it was end of April or early May, to our stakes, um, a Gladys Knight event. She came with her Saints Unified Voices Choir to our stake to do a fireside. And it was a phenomenal experience. And I've thought about that many times since, about what made it, so beautiful for everyone who went. Just hands down, everyone had a fantastic experience across ages, across races, class. None of that mattered. We were all joined together in this wonderful night of worship. Um, And I think that she brings to it a certain insider-outsider beauty that she, because she's been LDS now for 12 or 13 years, I think, maybe a little more, Mm -hmm. she knows the culture. She knows what people expect from a worship meeting, but because she's also coming from a different worship tradition, she's able to bring all of that to bear and teach people that it's okay to love God, and it's okay even to clap in church, and it's okay to sing your heart out. It was a beautiful night. So there are examples within our own tradition of times when this works, of times when we're just lifted out of ourselves. That's what I'd like to see more of. Well, and I think, again, to, to segue into your third point here, we're, we're talking a lot about music and, and the power that music has to stir our souls. And I, I think if if you listen to the more skeptical people, um, you know, in and out of the church, they would say, yeah, I, I've had those kinds of spiritually opening, moving experiences just in nature or, you know, listening to the Beatles or watching a good movie. You know, when, when, when I sat down in the movie theater for The Phantom Menace and the Star Wars logo came up on the screen and I heard John Williams, you know, score, I, I just got chills from head to, to toe. And it was very much like the way that I feel the, the spirit. And, and then Jar Jar Binks came on and it just all went to hell. But That's <laughs> just what I was thinking. Yeah. Misa thinks that the music was the best part. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, but that, that moment of anticipation, because I was bringing with me all of the love that I had for the previous Star Wars films, all the expectations that I had to be overwhelmed, you know, and, and I, I just wonder, I mean, I don't want to dis- discount your experience in Kirtland, but I, I wonder how 
much of that might also be playing a role anytime we we have i guess is it called confirmation bias where we we, we kind of receive what it is that we were hoping that that we would and, and music does away with it term if it, if it isn't already a term i think you've just coined yeah. one i like that expression yeah i do too well i think i've seen it other places yeah i can't claim it I, no I, I you didn't point it no <laughs> So, so your your third point then is that the the music in church is confining and often funeral. Funereal, yes, I, yeah. I do feel that. I think we have some fantastic hymns in our hymnal, and I worry that some from some of the comments that people misunderstood that I was saying that you know we need to throw out the hymnal and bring a praise band and have drums every week and everything. Well, you know that would be nice on occasion, but that's not really who we are. Even within the dictates, the parameters of, of who we are as Latter-day Saints, even within the parameters of the hymnal, um, we are just missing our musical tradition big time. And our congregational singing is anemic, impoverished. It is, it, in many wards, practically non-existent. I've been to some wards where hardly anybody sings. And that's terrible because we're, we're commanded in the Bible that we need to praise God with the voice. And if we're going to keep the commandments, that's an important one. There was something that you said under point three that really hit me because um, when my husband has come to my church, uh, and I've gotten a lot of blog comments to this effect too, what he's said about the music, the word that he usually uses when he sees our upbeat, spirited, evangelical music, the word that he often uses is irreverent. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of cuts me cuts me into my heart because uh, we're not trying to be irreverent. We're trying to be joyful. And in your article, you said, you know, we're missing joy in our music. And I, that's how I feel about this, that uh, I feel like Mormons come to Protestant services and they say, well, these services are irreverent. And Protestants come to Mormon services and they're like, well, this place is dead. It's lacking in joy. And uh, I'd like to see a place to meet somewhere in the middle. But uh, uh, yeah, that... uh, I really, really agreed with that, that it just feels like there's not a lot of joy in LDS services. I'm not saying that evangelical services can't improve, you know, songs like I Can Sing of Your Love Forever that repeat itself again and over over and over and over again. They kind of make me want to stick a fork in my ear, but uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> there right. are problems there with are... evangelical worship music, but... Uh... Yes, there are some problems with, with evangelical hymnody, no doubt. Um, but, but here's I think that the oh, sorry, joy component that's okay. I think that the joy component that I feel when I'm attending evangelical services is far higher than it is when I'm attending services in my own LDS ward. And people come and they expect to be uplifted. They expect that they're going to have a beautiful, worshipful experience that will take them out of themselves for if only for a moment. And that is a crucial component in what worship is. Now, style of music is uh, can be kind of a contentious issue. I mean, there's some Protestant churches today that'll do a contemporary service where they have really upbeat, young, youthful, spirited stuff, and then they do a traditional service where they've got the old people and the the <laughs> pipe organs. My husband's <laughs> church does that. Yes, they have they have yeah. banquet service, which is you know far more praise band friendly, and then they have the traditional liturgy. And both are absolutely stunning in their own way. Both of them can be very beautiful. And it's, it's nice that you have the option 
nine months out of a year anyway to go to the service that you feel where you feel closer to God. I don't think that that's really an option for Latter-day Saints, um, but we could think more about how to incorporate different styles into our worship so that more people feel the spirit. You, you mean well, it's you... more than just having the chorister ask everyone to rise? It's more than the chorister asking everyone to rise. Okay. Yes. Well, and you said Although, something else here. Oh, sorry. Do you want to go? Well, I was just going to say, you, you do point out something about worship that we're missing in sacrament meeting. And I didn't talk about this in the article, but worship is supposed to involve the body in some way. And if you look at worship and ritual studies throughout history, the body needs to be integrated. And just sitting for an hour and 15 minutes doesn't cut it. It puts you in a passive, receptive mode, but you are not actively with your body worshiping. In the temple, we do this much better. The temple is a, is a beautiful, full-body experience involving every sense that you have. Our worship and sacrament meeting needs to at least involve the body. And, you know, you see in some of the comments, well, you, you, you're saying that we need to stand up and kneel and sit down and stand up again, and that's confusing, and that's stupid and everything. Well, that may be confusing to you, but that is how people have worshipped throughout history, and it's something that we need to at least think about involving the body. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned the the, the temple experience. If if you look at the the evolution of the temple ceremony, it's actually moving more towards this passive, just sitting there to receive yeah. instruction kind of experience you know in in some some temples you actually move from room to room but they, they've kind of done away with that um and, and even in some of the the recent changes um you just sit more than you stand and that does accommodate people with disabilities i yeah. mean there are very practical reasons why that has has been put into place i'm sure um but something is lost in the translation so we need to think about what's lost along the way. Well, you said something else that I really paid attention to in this part of the article. You talked about, uh, your expression was Mormon theological chauvinism on this issue. And uh, I know that you go anywhere on the internet with a substantial LDS posting population and you try to discuss this issue. I didn't read your 94 comments, but uh, try to discuss this issue and within a couple of comments you're going to get somebody who's going to say, but the way we do things really is the best. Yeah. And because they personally think it's okay or it's really uplifting to them, they will insist that the the LDS way of doing things is the best things in the world. And, uh, you know, those funny people in Africa who bang drums and clap their hands and stuff, that's just inferior. And uh, so it's a very, very difficult issue to discuss because there seem to be so many people in the church who really do believe that their way is the best and there's no room for variety, there's no room for change. And not right. only is it is it the the best and the other stuff you know like the drum beating in in Africa, but if you brought that into the church, you would pollute it somehow. I mean, people that have those kinds of attitudes. And my my wife was uh, in the primary presidency a few years ago, and for the primary program, they wanted to do something with the children singing songs from around the world, and so they were you know practicing with different instruments, and some of them were African instruments, and there were people in the the, the, the church that said, absolutely, no, that's not going to happen. You're not going to bring that into the chapel. And, and they didn't quite come out and say because it's going to pollute it, but that's kind of what they had in, in their mind. So was the primary allowed to go forward or, or they were they, just put the they, they were allowed to sing the songs, but they weren't able to use any of the traditional instruments. 
Oh, I'm sad to hear that. Yeah. I guess not terribly surprised, but yeah. sad. You know, I, I want to be conscious of the fact that my musical heritage was probably shaped in Protestantism, and I don't want to say that that's the best way of doing things, but when Easter comes and we don't have trumpets and we have such a limited idea of what what kind of instrument is appropriate for worship. Well, you know, our church handbook of instruction says that trumpet is a two is a prominent instrument. It's overly prominent, which I think is really great. But what if we had prominence on Easter only? Just to say, this is the day. This is the day that Christ rose from the dead. This is special. This is unique. Today, we will have a trumpet. Why can't we do that? Moroni did. Darn straight. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That that would be nice. I, I have you know, been kind of lucky that I've I've lived in most of the wards that I've lived in have had uh, very musical people in the in the ward. And wh where I am right now, uh, in Bloomington, Indiana, you've got the the IU School oh. of Music, and so there's some wonderful um, musicians um, in the ward. And you know, we've had some very creative. Uh, organists <laughs> over over the years, as well. So that that's been that's been kind of nice. But I, I do think that in general, um, the, the the you're right on, on point number three that the the music and when somebody's playing it too slow, oh, just the 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 hour sometimes drags a, a, enough as it is. But when they're playing the, the tempo too slow, it just becomes unbearable. Yeah, and you know, with with the music. I think that we set a cadence for worship also with our prayer. And one of the first worship services, sacrament meetings, I should say, excuse me, one of the first sacrament meetings that I ever attended, I turned to the person next to me and I said, why do people pray here as though the gospel is the saddest thing in the world? Hmm. You know, the cadence of the voice is, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day. We're so thankful for the gospel. We're thankful <laughs> for the church. Yeah. Okay, there's nothing praising, there's nothing joyful about the way that we stand up and pray in public, and we think that that's reverence, yeah. but we're not praising God. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the tradition of performance on, on you know, prayer and, and all kinds of things, that, that rhetoric performance, that, that's something that I studied for a little bit when I, I was in academia, briefly. Mm. But uh, yeah, very very interesting stuff. So, uh, and and to, I, I'm going to try to segue again smoothly into the next point because that cadence, <laughs> I'm going to take cadence, goes into our talks, and the way that we stand up and 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 give the talks, um, kind of modeling. I think sometimes after the the, the general authorities, you know, you look at general conference, and there's a very easily. Uh, Imicable style, it's it's easy to make fun of, the the the, the style of speaking that um, uh, the prophet or the apostles or general authorities or a, a relief society um, president uh, will will get up in in general conference, and I think you see that over the podium a lot. So number four, you said our talks suck. So I was just going to ask you, instead of beating around the bush, Jana, tell us what you really think about the talks. <laughs> Yes, that wasn't subtle. Huh? <laughs> right. 
um, keep in mind that I wrote this whole blog post in the bathtub, and I had no idea that it would be um, such a firestorm of controversy. <laughs> we had a house full of people a couple of weeks ago, and I couldn't sleep one night, and I thought I would go ahead and write my column. I do, uh, Flunking Sainthood is pretty far-reaching, as I said, but every Monday is a column on Mormon life, so this was going to be my column. And so I, I went to the one room in the house where no one was, which was the bathroom, and just sat in the bathtub for a while. It was empty, I'll have you know, so that I did okay. not electrocute myself. Um, I'm not that into the spirit, but I just sat there and, and wrote this. And I think if I could go back and nuance this a little bit better, I would have said something a little bit different than our talks suck. But that was the moment. Um, it had a great impact. I, 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 I don't think, I mean, as an editor, you might be second guessing yourself on that, but I think you made the right choice. Well, it's certainly direct. I think yeah. that I was surprised since I made it clear in the post that I felt that points number one and five were the most important. We'll get to five in a minute. But the idea of, of envisioning worship and that the mechanics of worship, the talks and even the music, were less important and that those would come once we get the bigger picture straight. But this is the point that generated the most comments by far. People are extremely passionate about this issue of talks. Um, so let's let's discuss it for a minute. I think, I hope that I wasn't misunderstood. I'm not suggesting that Latter-day Saints should have a professional ministry. I'm not suggesting that we need to have only a few people called to give talks. Um, that is not what I suggested at all. What I suggested is that we train everyone to give a talk better. And there's no reason why we can't do that. We train members of the church to do other things. We train missionaries before they're going to go out to serve their mission. Why can't we have, you know, one person suggested in the comments we could have a calling even where the person is a, is a talk specialist and helps people with resources, providing them resources from the church to help them with their talk because some people are kind of flying blind. And I think... You know what would end up happening people, with that calling? What was that? I said, you know what would end up happening with that calling? Is, is no, that, what would happen? That they would end up being the de facto speaker when the, the people called didn't show up. <laughs> I hadn't thought about yeah. that, but you're probably right. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. probably right. No, that's okay. That's okay. Um, I want people to think about how we might do this better. I'm not saying that we don't have a lay ministry, because that's one of the most beautiful aspects of Mormonism, the fact that, in, in my word anyway, everybody gets called to speak about annually, maybe every 14 months or so, and that's hugely important. It's important for their testimony. It's important for everyone else in understanding these people, and that's an important part of congregational worship and what I talked about, binding us together, religion, lig, ligament, Religion is supposed to bind us together. Having members give talks is a, is a crucial component of that, but we have to do it better. You know, this is one where I'm not sure. This is probably the point where I kind of not blatantly disagreed. I do think that the talks tend to suck, but I, I think that that's just... Uh, how do I put this? You know, Protestants, you were training to be a pastor, so you know this. Protestants put so much effort into training people to give interesting talks. There's so many classes and things you have to take on it if you're training to be a pastor and 
all the requirements for being a pastor, and it was actually a huge concern at my church. Uh, my church is pastored by a really, really awesome woman, and at the time they were considering her as a senior pastor. She was the youth pastor, and one of their concerns was, you don't really like to talk a lot. And uh, often the pastor is kind of the face of the church, you know, the local church. You might put your picture in the phone book with the advertisement or something like that or on the flyers that you hand out for the church. So it was really important that the person giving the talks uh, be good at it and like doing it and uh, do it regularly. And what they do at my church is, uh, well, what they used to do is they had the pastor speak twice a month. And then she's got what's called a preaching team. They're two guys who are not formerly pastors. And uh, one would talk one Sunday and one would talk the other Sunday. So we actually have a rotation of speakers at my church. But anyways, the point of all of this is, is that Protestants put a lot of effort into getting really, really interesting sermons. And I'm just not sure that you can ever get that. I mean, sure, I agree with you that if you do one in five, number four is going to get better. But I'm just not sure. I think it's kind of one of the lumps that you take with having a lay ministry is that some people are not very good at it. And some people aren't very good at speaking. And uh, you just take with the bad, the bad with the good. And I do think that there's strengths and advantages to giving members talks. I would love it if I got to speak at my church once a year, but I don't think they're ever going to let me do that. But uh, yeah, that you was know, my own feelings on this one. I agree that we're going to have a huge variety in terms of people's abilities and their interest. A lot of people are very terrified of public speaking, but what you do is you train them. And if you are prepared, you shall not fear. I really believe that. We will have better speakers. We will have more uh, comfortable speakers when we give them a bone. We need to throw them a bone. And, you know, I had to take preaching when I was in seminary. I didn't necessarily enjoy the first months of that because it's very hard, but I learned a lot and I'm so grateful now for that experience. Um, even in a secular context, many people have to do public speaking. My poor husband, you know, is an introvert and an engineer and he finds he has to give presentations at least once a week. And that's not something that he was ever trained to do, but now he has to. Um, we can do this better. I really think that we should do it better. We need to make it more of a priority. So are, are you thinking then, like when, when you say that the talks have issues, we'll say, when, when, when the talks have issues instead of the thing itself, <laughs> um, it, it, is it more content-based or is it more style, the, the, the presentation? I mean, what, what would you have them, them trained differently to, to do or to say? Well, in terms of style, that's really a secondary issue. I think everyone has their own speaking style. And while I have some quibbles, general quibbles, like nobody should get up and spend the first four minutes of a talk explaining how they got the call to talk or how uncomfortable they are giving the talk or how they think the talk is going to be terrible. Just don't do that. That's, that's bad. But in terms, that's really the only delivery issue that I almost ever have in church. Most of it is with content. I think we've, we've moved away from the idea of having members draw from their own experiences and integrate the gospel into their talk and into their lives, and that is a loss. When you hand somebody a general conference talk that's already been given a few months ago and say, we want you to give this talk in sacrament meeting, you are robbing the congregation of that person's joy and experience and thoughts. 
And while you can say, here's a topic, and here are a couple of conference talks that also address that topic, you're going to get a better talk if you sit down with the person and say, what have your experiences been with the atonement? Or what have your experiences been with unity? Or whatever the topic is. And draw that person out, have a conversation. Um, Studies have shown that we remember 16% of what we've heard. That's after only 24 hours. So if you can imagine what we think we remember many days or weeks or months or years later is almost nothing. But what we do remember, that 16%, it's the stories. One time when I was teaching gospel doctrine class a few years ago, it was the week after general conference, and before we started the lesson, I opened our lesson just by saying, so what impressed you most about conference? What do you remember? And so people started talking about the stories. People started talking about, oh, I remember when President Faust told the story about his neighbor. Um, Nobody said, apparently we need to be following the commandments more. Nobody said we need to be tithing. What they remembered were the stories, the things that had impressed them. And so we need to think about that when we are giving people assignments to speak in church. Jesus spoke through story. He used parables to get his points across. We're not better than Jesus. We need to get back to story. And we need to allow people the freedom to draw upon what they have learned in their lives to teach the gospel. Awesome. Sounds good to me. <laughs> good. Yeah, I, 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 I like those um, kinds of talks better uh, as well. And, and you know, the, the, the cynical side of me says, well, what, what new is there to say that hasn't already been said? Of course, you're going to have rut after rut, you know, things repeating themselves. But when, when you have people bring their experiences and their perceptions um, to it, you do get a lot more variety. Um, so yeah, right. that, that, that could definitely make it more interesting. You could hear a talk on the atonement every week for a year and not be bored if people talked about how the atonement had changed their lives. And that's the key. That's what we're missing. You know, one time in Relief Society, this was not in sacrament meeting, but our stake Relief Society president is, I don't know, an exercise physiologist or, or kinesiologist or something like this. She teaches at a university. And we were talking about that passage in Paul that I mentioned earlier where the hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. Every part of the body is important. And she drew upon her experiences as whatever it is that she does, physiologist, um, to talk about the human elbow, okay, which, you know, doesn't sound like a terribly sexy topic, but I will never forget what she said. She said, the elbow, we take it completely for granted and we never think about it until there's something wrong with it. And we realize how this completely limited part of our body that only does one thing and only bends in direction, one direction, turns out to be so important for everything else. And she used this metaphor of the elbow as as a way into Paul. And I thought, wow, wow, nobody else but her could have done that because she has studied, and of course she knew lots of detail that I'm omitting here, but she has studied this, and she can help us understand what Paul is saying here about how every seemingly insignificant part of the body of Christ is in fact essential. Yeah, and, and, it, and it makes you think when you hear it. It did. And, and, and for, for me, that's kind of what I want. I, I want to go there and I, I want to be stimulated. 
So, Me too. Yeah. Number five. Nobody seems prepared to envision this differently. Right. Well, this is kind of a catch-all, just saying that our leaders need to, to get out in front of this. Um, we are bleeding in sacrament meeting attendance in America, and we are having a, a hard time retaining new converts, especially abroad, but also here. And so we need to be thinking about how sacrament meeting can respond to people's needs better. And I had one comment on the blog that was hurtful about, gee, haven't you heard that we have a prophet whose job it is to think about these things? Who, who the heck do you think you are to be criticizing the church? Do you think maybe if God thought this was important, he might give a revelation to the prophet? Well, yes, I do. I do. And maybe that's in the works. I don't know. All I can do is speak honestly from my own experience and say that we have a lot of room to grow here, which is a great opportunity for us. Yeah, boy. Uh, comments like that kind of get my blood boiling. Well, anytime that you say anything needs to be changed about current LDS doctrine or practice, this could probably be its own podcast, but you're going to get someone who's going to say, <laughs> how dare you question our leaders? I mean, there was a, in, a couple months ago, the church actually asked people for feedback on gospel principles. So people were talking about the new gospel principles manual and what could be improved in it. And there were still people commenting and saying, how dare you guys put down the gospel principles manual like this? It, the church asked for your feedback. They want to know what's wrong with it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's pretty indicative, isn't it? Yeah, it's that kind of top-down veneration that you know that, that you can't. I was in an elder quorum once, and somebody was was talking. I don't even remember what the subject was now, but he said, "This is something that a general authority told us that we ought to do in our lives." And I don't know who the general authority was, but if he's a general authority, I know he's going to be smarter than me. And I just thought, man, really? I don't know. I don't want to stall us up on that. but yeah. Well, you're right that that would be its own podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think one, one aspect of Mormonism that is puzzling to me is that we are a religion that puts a tremendous amount of theological emphasis on progress and improvement. So why is it that we are only applying that to individuals? Why is it that we are not implying, applying that to the church, which we believe is the institution that is supposed to reflect Christ? That, that is such a good point. I don't have a good answer. Well, well, let, let me ask maybe a sensitive question here then, Jana, and, and say, if do, do you think, <laughs> I'm asking you to think for God, do you think that God is happy with the way that the sacrament meetings are going? I don't think that's a fair question. Sorry, Glenn. <laughs> okay. First of all, it's not my place to put myself in God's shoes yeah. and say what I think God might be thinking. But there's, there's simply no way for us to know that. I think that God is pleased, at least my reading of the scripture is, that God is pleased whenever we come together with the idea of setting time apart to worship him or to pray to him, and I think a lot of people pray during sacrament meeting. Um, sacrament meeting is a time of reflection. It's a time of thought. You know, sometimes I'm sitting there taking the sacrament and something will occur to me that I haven't 
been able to quite put my finger on until I had some quiet time to reflect. So I don't know, I guess. I think that God loves us even when we screw up, hence the flunking sainthood. You know, I think that there are things that we could be doing better, but it doesn't change how God feels about us. When the picture that your five-year-old drew in kindergarten and bring, brings home isn't a work of art, you put it on the fridge. It's going to be something that expresses that child's love, and God, you know, God does not give us stone for bread. I was actually just thinking of that. I was just thinking, like, when my little girl who has speech problems talks to me and, you know, she says cereal, you know, she's asking for cereal. I'm so pleased that she's talking because there was a time not so long ago when she wasn't talking at all. So she comes Mm -hmm. to me and she grabs my arm and she says cereal. And I say, that's good, Harley. Can you say please? Because I'm so happy that she's talking to me, but I try to push her into something better. So I'm pleased that she's talking to me. It's not that I'm displeased that she asked for cereal, but I try to push her into progress, into something better. Mm. And so maybe there's just a place where Latter-day Saints could go that would be more pleasing to God. That's well said. Yeah, I I, I think, you know, that there are scriptural examples that, that, that could be pointed to of the Zoramites in the Book of Mormon with their Ramiamptum and, and the way that they worshipped or experienced worship to them. Um, Pharisees, Pharisaical worship in the, in, in the New Testament, that if you start making comparisons and you start seeing that there's some similarities, then maybe there could be some scriptural <laughs> reasons to say, I don't know, is, is God happy with this? Is he not happy with this? I, I don't know. It, it's not a fair question, but it's a fair question. <laughs> so, oh. well, thanks for for coming on with this, Janet. Do, do you have any closing remarks, Bridget, that you'd like to make? I'm just very grateful to Janet for coming and doing this interview with us, and uh, hope that we get her back on the show someday. It's, it's been oh, wonderful. and Janet, it sounds yeah. like you would have made one hell of a pastor. Just so you know. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, God called me to do something different, but that's nice to hear. However, I would say. Um, just to be fair, that I totally sucked at visiting people in the hospital. (laughs) was one of the the big uh, realizations when I was in seminary that maybe that wasn't my calling. It's very fascinating. Astral care, not easy. Well, I'll be very curious to hear uh, our listeners' opinion on this. And as always, the discussion continues over at mormonexpression.com or you can email any of us uh, at mail at mormonexpression.com. Thanks again for coming on, Jana. Thank you. Thank you both. All right. Take care. So, so Jana, do you and Bridget know each other? No. Hello, Bridget. Only, only through your writing. Yeah. Uh, when I was um, engaged to my husband about 2003, somebody gave me her Sunstone article on her interfaith marriage. It came out right about then. Mm. So that was how I first heard about Jana. I also read What Would Buffy Do? Because I'm a big Buffy fan. And that's how I'll say it. So, yeah, you're like my best friend. You just don't know it. (laughs) Hello. I'm glad we're BFFs already. (laughs) 